Warning, the following podcast has been classified as insanely lucrative. Listener discretion is advised. And you know it's a counterfeit and you know that there's uh, the, the reviews that are going to come in off of those by the time you stop it are going to affect your listing. Your attention, please. please. Listening to the AMPM podcast may cause recurring revenue stream and unfair, unfair advantages over your competitors. Other side effects may include better wallets, fired bosses, and longer vacations. Listen at your own risk. Here's your host, seven-figure entrepreneur and online marketing madman, Manny Coates. Manny Coates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the AMPM podcast. My name is Manny Coates, and I will be your host. And this is the show where we discuss how to generate recurring revenue streams 24 hours per day during the AM and the PM, hence the name of the show. As a matter of fact, I was just booking tickets to Spain, a trip I'm going to be taking next month. And while booking those tickets, I was making money. How cool is that? Pretty cool, I think. So today I did an interview with private label lawyer, Susie Hickson, and we talked about all kinds of awesome things. We talked about brand registry, how to protect your brand, how to set up your brand, how to stop and remove hijackers, trademarks, awesome resources to check brand usage online, GS1 UPCs versus normal UPCs, and a ton of other things. So guys, this episode runs long, okay? It's about an hour and a half, but it's full of nuggets. So without further ado, let's jump in to that interview. It is an honor and a privilege to introduce Susie Hickson. She is one of our FBA High Roller members. She's also an intellectual property law attorney, and she's been doing this for, what, is it 13 years, Susie? (laughs) 13 years, Manny. Like Uh, I said, time flies when you're having fun, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, so tell uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, first of all. Well, sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for um, having me on here and giving me an opportunity to speak with your listeners, maybe answer some questions um, that you have um, about intellectual property and how it applies to Amazon and how you can use it to your advantage on Amazon. Um, But yeah, I started practicing law in 2013. I'm sorry, 2003. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's go back even further. 2003. I started out doing patent law. I did that for about a year and a half. And honestly, I kind of found it a little boring and monotonous. And so fortunately, I quickly evolved into doing uh, trademark work, which was a really good fit with me, for me. I got to work with a lot of creatives. Um, I worked for a medium-sized law firm and um, worked for mainly medium-sized businesses for um you know, most of the time uh, that I was at that firm. And then um, I had a couple of larger clients that I basically managed their trademark portfolios. Um, and in 2010, I moved to California and um, into San Francisco and worked with, worked with a couple startups out there. And it was a lot of fun. I learned a ton um, and I lost a lot of money. So that was not the fun part of it. But, you know, I guess you live and learn. But I realized that there was still a huge need for, um trademark work out there. And so I decided to start my own law practice offering sort of um, reduced rates for people um, who are sort of in the startup world and who are small businesses and entrepreneurs. Um, And after, or I guess last year, I had a client who 
was doing private label on Amazon. And I, I didn't really know exactly what it was he was doing, but I was like, you know what, I'm going to figure this out. So I started, um, doing some of my own private labeling and it was such a great learning experience. And I let, you know, I met some really cool people. Um, you know, I kind of encountered a lot of the same obstacles that, um, private label sellers have, and it was just a really great learning experience. And just by, you know, kind of hanging around on, um, some of the Facebook, uh, groups, I realized that people, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about intellectual property and trademarks. And, you know, I just saw so much kind of just bad information being passed around. Um, and so this past year I, um, slightly pivoted my law practice, um, and kind of branded myself as the private label lawyer. Um, you know, I still have my kind of a regular, you know, IP law practice, but I just recently started, um, kind of this private label lawyer brand to, um, you know, make myself available to people who are going down the Amazon path and might run into problems with counterfeit or, um, just want to basically know how to protect their brands on the Amazon platform and just e-commerce um, in general. Okay, wow. So I, I can imagine with your law degree and with your knowledge, uh, I can imagine myself having that and just what I could do, the damage I could do to the people that mess with me online. It would just be- The damage, you would bring the thunder. <laughs> it would be crazy. So I'm, I'm curious though, um, so now you're you're doing FBA private label. Did you do that mainly to kind of boost up your knowledge on on that industry so it would help your private label lawyer business or is has that now shifted where you're really kind of doing both? Well, yeah, I didn't even really think about, you know, being the private label lawyer until after I started doing private labeling. And, and the reason I was doing private labeling was because, um, like I said, I had a client that was doing it and I didn't quite understand what he was doing. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to kind of dig in here and figure this out and, and go through all of this myself as well so I can hopefully help him more. And it was just a great learning experience for me, um, kind of about how the platform works, how the back end works on Amazon. I mean, I was addicted to podcasts last year. Um, <laughs> like I couldn't, I was so just into the whole, you know, um, everything about like importing and getting to brand your own products and putting it on the Amazon platform. That was just such a cool thing um, for me to do. And like I said, I just, you know, it's just been this last probably five to six months where I'm like, oh my gosh, I could actually really help people who are also private label sellers who just really aren't appreciating the importance of intellectual property. So I've kind of, you know, like melded my experience with, with intellectual property and, um, my more limited experience with um, private labeling. Okay, got it. And um, if you don't mind me asking, I'm curious, because you and I haven't actually uh, talked very much before this, but um, how is your private label business doing? And do you mind mentioning like how many SKUs or products you have going? Sure, that's fine. I have, I just have two SKUs. Um, they're both cell phone accessories. Um, the first one that I imported did really well. Um, the second, um, product I imported. Um, I'll just go into what that was. It was, it was a uh, cell phone batteries, like portable batteries. Um, and that really was much more of a flop. I still have some in the warehouse. So, um, yeah, I'm like thinking, do I need to pull those in August? I don't know. Um, but yeah, so my first one did great. My second one, you know, I thought, Oh, I know what I'm doing. Like I know the ropes now. And, you know, even though I thought I knew more, it, the, the product was not as successful as the first one. So, you know, 
not telling anyone who's going down this road. Like, just because you mess up on your first one, you know, doesn't mean, you know, you're going to do bad on your second one or, or vice versa. You should just, uh, you know, just get out there and do it. It's really the best way to learn. And, and, and just listen to podcasts like you guys have. I mean, just absorb the information, take notes. Yeah. I think if people have been following me, they know that my very first product as well was a flop. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was all gung ho, thought it was going to work great, got in and um, it ultimately failed. It wasn't a horrible flop, but it just wasn't a, a moneymaker. Sure. And I was wondering, I'm like, what do I do with all these extra units? I'm kind of like you. And I started using those. Um, I, I used that actual skew in that product line as a test bed. So anytime I was, mm-hmm. we we're running some tools or doing something, I'm like, you know what? I got to do some kind of a uh, some bad stuff to the back end that, you know, things I, I don't want to do to my live, really cool products. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. stick them on this one. And if it gets killed, you know, it's not a big deal. So it became like the, the little, uh, science lab. And that's it, actually really smart. <laughs> yeah, it worked well. And I actually, uh, sold out finally. I, in oh, fact, yeah. just recently they, the la- I was ra- I kept raising the price on it cause I didn't want them to sell out. And, um, they just kept selling like one a day here. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. So are you going to continue um, the FBA side of things and, and building your brands or are you uh, at this point going to be focused on just <laughs> one thing? You know, honestly, since I've started, since I kind of pivoted to, you know, the private label law, I have been so slammed with work. Um, and a lot of this is because of the counterfeit issues that we're having um, right now with Amazon. Um, so I haven't had the time that I've wanted to, to just really sit down and work, you know, with, with PPC and, and, you know, doing the sourcing, you know, because when I got my first few products, I did so much research. I, I researched and researched and, uh, you know, ordered samples and worked with Chinese sellers. And, you know, I spent a lot of time doing that. And, and right now, honestly, I don't really have the time to do it. So, and, yeah. and what, what little limited free time I have, you know, I'm, I'm very much trying to be good about spending time with my family. So, yeah, I get that. I, I'm, I'm the person that can totally understand taking on too many projects and mm-hmm. can kind of lose focus of, of all of them if you don't really focus on, you know, just one or two specific sure. things. So since you're talking about the private label business and, and intellectual law and trademarks and all that, let's get into that. Um, for those that are new and probably don't know a lot about that, where would you start? I mean, if you have a client coming in and you need to advise them, they're saying, hey, I've got a product. I'm about to launch it. Um, what should I do? What, what's the advice? Where do you start with all of this? Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to know is, are they going to want to import this and then just like sell it as a generic product or they actually want to do true private labeling where they import and actually brand it as their own? And, you know, 99% of the time, that's what clients want to do. But I always just want to make sure that's, you know, that we're on the same, the same page. Um, and with respect to branding, um, there's a lot of creative elements that go into that. And even though I appreciate creativity, I am probably not the most creative person in the entire world. So, you know, I, I don't really work with a lot of the actual development of the brand. I suggest that they, you know, work with a branding agency to do that or do it on their own or have their family help them or have, you know, their cousin, Bob, who <laughs> is in branding, help them if they need, you know, they need to do that. Um, so, you know, after they come to me, though, with a few, uh, you know, possible brands or, or trademarks that they're wanting to use for their private label business, one of the first things that I want to make sure that they're doing is they're choosing a strong brand. Mm-hmm. And when I say a strong brand, um, what I mean is, 
it can't be overly descriptive of what those products are that you're selling. So if you're selling, you know, kitchenware on Amazon, you can't brand it as, you know, like super cool kitchenware, you know, because that's just way too descriptive. You, you need a mark that is a little more suggestive of what your, of what your products are. Um, and then I also encourage my clients to uh, do some of their own clearance searching um, to, to make sure that there's no one else using that mark. Now, you might come across other people or other companies using a similar mark and that still might not be an impediment to your use of the mark, but um, it's still a good um, a good idea to do that clearance search. Um, just just an example of some marks that coexist that are the same um, are Delta Airlines and Delta Faucets, and I think there's a lot of other Deltas out there. So, you know, just because you come across a mark that's identical to yours, you're not completely. Um, you know, <laughs> left without a mark, you might want to take it to your trademark attorney at that point to, you know, kind of give you an opinion on whether or not that mark could be confusingly similar to yours. Um, you know, there I have several uh, suggested resources that um, clients can use to do that searching on their own. Um, and if they want to, there's also more robust, comprehensive searching that um, I typically recommend if someone is rolling out a new brand. And that robust comprehensive search um, is is basically software-based and searches different uh, variations and iterations of, of words and names. And it also searches um, the USPTO database, common law um, resources done in Bradstreet, state trademark filings and, and things like that. So it's a lot more extensive search. Right. Um, it's pricey, um, but it will help you sleep a little better at night, maybe. <laughs> right. Yeah. And on our Facebook group, um, a little while back, actually, and that's how I uh, I actually came to know of you, you had yeah. posted a couple of really cool links um, where people could, they were free. You could, you could start off and uh, just check the whole social media area, right? And see if that particular brand name or the name that you're thinking about using is available on all the social media platforms. Right. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I can give those out now or if you want me to just, you know, kind of point people to a resource at some point, like, you know, towards the end of our talk, I'd be happy to. But yeah, there there are a couple of free resources out there that are really good for that, you know, that cursory knockout search that clients should do. Yeah, what, um, what are they? I mean, we'll put them yeah. in the show notes as well. Awesome. Okay, so one of them is called, it's Noam, and that's K-N-O-W-E. M as in mom.com, noam.com. And the other one is name, N-A-M-E, and then check, but it's spelled C-H-K.com. Awesome. Those are really good resources, I think. I use them quite a bit just to do knockout searches. And one thing I really like about them is I love the way that they reveal social media platform or, um, you know, handles and usernames because those are really good um, indicators of actual use of a mark out there. So if you happen to, you know, have a mark that you're interested in and you see that there's a Twitter handle that's the exact same mark, you know, you might want to go to that Twitter profile and just kind of do a little more research and investigation just to see what it is exactly they're doing. So, yeah, that's a great point there. It could save you a lot of money 
in the actual deep searches when you're doing uh, trademark searches, right? And you might find that a particular phrase that you thought was so awesome and so unique is actually in <laughs> use on 20 different sites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that actually happens a lot as, you know, people will come up with something that's like, this has got to be the most unique thing ever. And, you know, and you do the searching and several results come up. And it's like, <laughs> oh, you know, and, and then, like I said earlier, you know, just because you do come up with something that's exact, you know, don't, you know, it could be for different it could be for different um, goods or services. Um, you know, I, we have a host of arguments trademark attorneys do in, you know, trying to overcome likelihood of confusion refusals. So, you know, there's a lot of different factors that kind of go into that whole analysis about whether or not two marks are, are too close. But the main, the main things you want to think about are what, you know, the overall appearance of your mark compared to the other mark and what your goods are compared to you know, how the other mark is being used. Got it. Now what, uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna jump around because I know we, we wanna talk about brand registry uh, yes. as well. But if somebody's trying to, if they do this search on one of the two sites you mentioned and they find that the domain is actually taken, but overall it's still a good good brand name. Mm -hmm. um, would you, for brand registry, if the name isn't exact, does that matter too much? I mean, what's your experience yeah. there? I, you know, I think having a domain name that's consistent with your brand is great from a branding, overall branding perspective. And I feel like, you know, that's the same across the board when it comes for social media handles. It's great if your Twitter and your Pinterest and Instagram and, you know, your domain name can all be the same. But in terms of brand registry, um, you know, getting a trademark, that kind of thing, your domain name is merely an online address and that's it. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. Cool. So yeah, a so, person does a search. They they find something they think is good. What's the next step? You know, I typically recommend trademark filing. Um, and people always ask me, well, how do I know when I should file a trademark application um, for for my brand? And you know, I typically say as soon as it's economically feasible. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, or whatever right. that saying mm -hmm. is. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really is. You will end up kicking yourself if you don't go ahead and file as soon as you can. Um, and like I said, as soon as you're, it's economically feasible. Um, and the USPTO filing fee um, is two hundred seventy-five dollars per mark per class. So, you know, that's that could be a decent amount of money for a company that's just getting started and they're really like trying to, you know, wash their pennies. Um, but it's still an important investment, I think, in your overall brand. Um, you know, I suggest to people, you know, ask yourself, like, do you consider your brand um, as an asset to your business? Just like your, you know, the laptop that you have that you spent probably three to five thousand dollars on it. you know if you consider it you know integral to your business like you need to err on the side of filing uh sooner rather than later right um now, and what, I, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say what do you do though if you're a new seller and mm -hmm. you don't have your product actually launched yet so you don't know if it's going to be a success or not is it worth spending the extra money on the trademark before doing so, because in your example earlier, you said you launched two products, for example, and I launched my first product and they failed. So the, the trademark in those cases wouldn't have really mattered too much. Would you mm -hmm. still have, do you still recommend doing that in advance or do you kind of preach, you know, give it a try and as soon as you know it's something that's working, then jump on it immediately? See, I think it's better to file just really as soon as you can. And I know that people probably think I'm biased because I'm a trademark lawyer, but I think I'm coming also from the perspective that I've seen 
the other end of it so much where it becomes so much more complex when you wait six months or you, you know, and someone else files before you do, and that can become, become such a pain or, you know, someone jumps on your listing, a counterfeiter jumps on your listing, you know, it's so much more difficult to enforce a brand if you don't have a registration. And at the end of the day, it's going to take you at the very least six to eight months to get your mark registered after you file it. Um, you know, and that's assuming that you don't run into any obstacles during the application process. You know, people are spending money on a product um, and they're, you know, they are taking some risk there. And that's just what happens when you're, you know, when you're kind of, when you're in this business, there is always an element of risk. And the same thing goes for filing the trademark application, you know, but your risk of loss might be $275, you know, if you use an attorney, probably more than that. Um, but at the same time, I encourage anyone who's looking at branding is, you know, really think about like what your private label product is and think about realistically how will you expand around that product. So let's say that you start importing bamboo forks. This is random. It just came to my head. Like it, let's say you start importing bamboo forks. Okay. Um, and you want to choose a brand for it. Well, your bamboo forks might end up failing, but you know, you could also import bamboo tongs and bamboo, you know, other kitchenware. So when you file that trademark application at the very beginning, when you uh, recite your goods within that application, you know, you would want to list out all of the goods that you could potentially foresee you using the mark on. Uh Um, So it'd be forks, bamboo forks, knives, tongs, you know, things like that. So you wouldn't be filing for just like one specific thing for that mark. And, and another thing is like, this is kind of a tip if anyone's doing this on their own, when they file, you know, try to be as broad as you can be in that goods description. Um, you know, the USPTO isn't going to let you get away with just saying kitchen wares, but um, you can try to be fairly broad if possible. And, um, you know, that way you can kind of expand your goods as you see fit. Yeah. Um, and I, I see that question a lot too, is what, um, do I need to choose a new brand for this thing? And you know, a lot of, it just depends. Like, do you, are you, is it a similar product? Are you going for the same kind of market space? So there's different considerations. Yeah. That's a really good point. That's really smart. So take a little bit of time when you're planning out your product or you're about, even mm-hmm. if you've ordered your product, but think about the future related products you're going to be doing. And that's really smart because um, you can build off of that brand. So if you have, like you said, if you're selling the forks and you know you're going to be selling um, spoons and knives and plates and whatever it is, you can expand that out. And if one does fail or it doesn't work out, at least the brand's in place for you to bring in a bunch of other stuff and keep trying. Yeah, your brand's in place. And and that's what is important because you will have products that fail. You know, when (laughs) when you really start, you know, kind of rolling out different, different items they're you're, they're not all going to be home runs so you kind of have to factor for that yeah and then you had mentioned you know for just a you know just under $300 you can get the trademark going is that if somebody does it themselves and can and I don't even know do you, is this a service that you also offer or would you recommend they go to a specific place to to do these things yeah, um, this is something I do. I do a lot of trademark filings. I think I filed four today. <laughs> um, yeah, so the USPTO fee is two seventy five. Now I offer a flat rate on the initial filing, and you'll find a lot of attorneys that will do that. 
Um, if you do, you know, go to an attorney and they want to charge you an hourly rate, just keep in mind that that is going to end up costing you more. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it's, I can do a flat rate at the beginning because I know how long it takes me to do an initial filing and get everything ready. Um, and, but I don't offer flat rate on responding to office actions and if any kind of opposition issue comes up, um, that does have to revert to my, I guess my hourly rate. So, um, just, just keep that in mind though. You'll find that, um, attorney prices vary quite a bit and a lot of it depends on experience and law firm size and geographic location and things like that. Right. So outside of talking to a real person, if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I want to trademark this product. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the, the differences, uh, between let's say using your service and going to an online service like trademark or something like that? Yeah, I'm not totally familiar with Trademarkia and um, LegalZoom. As I understand, I kind of feel like they are, they'll file, file the paperwork for you, but they won't give you any legal advice in terms of, you know, it's best to craft your goods or services a certain way. Um, so they're not going to help you in that respect. I don't know what kind of docketing they do. If you go to a law firm, your trademark will be on a docket. And having a docket is very important because, I mean, obviously because, you know, when a trademark is going through the application process, uh, you know, you might be issued office actions. And if you're issued an office action, there's going to be a deadline to respond to that. It's a very uh, lenient or, I guess, generous deadline, but it still exists. And if you miss it, your application will go abandoned. So I don't think LegalZoom does it. Now, trademark, you might dock it. I'm not really sure. Okay. Um, but they will not also help um, with the office actions or, you know, dealing with office action responses. Um, right. At that point, I think you would have to hire their internal counsel. Okay. And I know the listeners are curious, so I'm just going to ask uh -huh. straight out, what is your flat rate? What's the rate that, you, uh, that you're offering? $600. Okay. So that's actually very similar then to some of the fees that I paid for trademarks using the online services. Because by the time you start adding in all these little ancillary fees here, there, sure. it, it starts adding up. So, okay. Yeah. It's like, okay, we can do this for you for $200, but oh wait, that doesn't include this and this and this. But um, my flat rate does include that initial filing fee um, of 275 So really it's 320 My rate would be 325 for that one filing. Right. And that's a national search because I, I think that was one of the other things with the online service. They have like uh, different levels of searches and that's how they get you. It's like, oh, I want the full search to make sure I'm not in trouble. Yeah. No. So that fee is just the trademark filing fee and would not include any um, any kind of searching, like any kind of clearance searching. That would be a, kind of a, a different a totally different thing. Now, also, I do do flat rate uh, clearance searching for clients um, and th those are twelve hundred. And it's con it kind of freaks people out and I get that, but um, <laughs> I have to pay an outsourced fee um, to the company that I use to actually do those clearance searches and their fee runs between five and $600 depending on the scope of the search. And um, so that right there is like almost as much as just my flat rate. So, <laughs> so most people, um, they'll do a lot of their clearance searching on their own and they'll opt to go ahead and file a trademark application um, without doing the comprehensive searching. Okay, and do you recommend that? When we, when, if we go back actually, and you said, well, you know, it's better for somebody to do this up front and get a yeah. trademark. Um, if they don't know if the product or, or even the brand is gonna be good, they should still do mm -hmm. a clearance search, right? Or, or, or would they I mean, skip that process? 
I think at the very least, you do your own searching at the very least. You know, you can look on the, the, the two resources I gave you. You can look on the, you know, the USPTO website. Um, you know, just keep up on that those kinds of searches do have limitations. You know, you're, you know, you, it's very difficult for you to search 10 variations of your mark. Um, so, and that's something that a comprehensive search through, um, and, you know, like an outsourced search, like what I do, that's where that really comes in handy is, you know, I feel like that software is a lot smarter than we are as individuals because it like the software knows how to go out and search all these different variations of a trademark and all these different platforms, common law, uh, you know, state trademark databases, like I said, the USPTO. Um, again, a comprehensive search is expensive. Um, I, you know, like I said, my flat rate for them is $1,200 and that's probably about average for one of those. Um, and, and it does become a difficult decision when a client's like, oh, well, you know, should I just go ahead and risk it, you know, and save my $1,200 or, you know, should I be very thorough and, you know, do the comprehensive search? Now, <laughs> as an attorney, I really have to suggest in most instances, yeah, you should probably do that comprehensive search. But if I put my business hat on, <laughs> I get the balance that a company has to make internally, you know, when it comes to, you know, just, you know, having to watch, um, you know, your bottom line every single day. I mean, when you're starting a business, $1,200 is a lot of money um, to do to spend on something like this. So typically, um, I would say, 10 to 15% of my clients will do a, you know, a comprehensive search before they file. But to be honest, they're established companies that have a legal budget. Um, very few of my smaller business clients do the uh, comprehensive searches. They just go ahead and file. So, you know, there's no requirement to do any kind of comprehensive search. I just always like for people to know that exists and, it's typically strongly suggested. Now, if you've been using a brand for over six months to a year, um, typically like let's just file applications since you've already been using it. Okay. All right. That's good. Now, a person files for their trademark and while it's pending, they're now selling mm -hmm. on Amazon and they have to deal with potential hijackers or counterfeiters, whatever it is you want to call them. Yeah. Um, and that's, this is becoming a, a much bigger problem just about every single month. It's getting bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. um, you're probably seeing a lot of this now. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And, and Do you want to, so oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I, I get someone contact me like from, you know, an Amazon seller probably every other day with, with a hijacker issue. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. And I think a lot of this has to do with Amazon opening up to the Chinese or to Chinese sellers. Um, and sometimes I feel like, you know, Amazon is kind of bowing down to that portion. I don't know. I feel like sometimes they're making it more difficult on, um, you know, U.S.-based sellers. And it's like, okay, they're the ones having to invest the time and money to go after these hijackers. And Amazon isn't making it very easy on us. So that's why, you know, I try to tell people, you know, make your listing, your ASIN, you know, really branded towards you. Make it difficult to a potential hijacker. Like really the name of the game is, um, you know, make it hijacker proof. It's, it's deterrence. Let them go to a easy target, not you. Right. Yeah. 
And that uh, part of that process is uh, very seriously private labeling your product. Don't just find something that they're making at the factory and then slap a logo on it and be done with it. Because <laughs> yeah. you're a prime target at that point. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not yeah. good. So we, you want to mention for those listeners that might be just starting out and haven't actually heard the term hijacker, or maybe they've heard it, but they don't know exactly what it is. You want to talk a little bit about what that is and then what you can do to actually protect yourself against that? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, when you have what's called like quote unquote hijacker issue, um, basically we're, we use that as a very broad generalization. And we kind of say that's just someone who's selling on our listing. You know, we go to our our Amazon listing and we were like, oh no, we can click on this link here and we see that there's someone else who's selling, you know, allegedly our product. Who is this person or business? Like what is going on? So there's kind of different levels of, of hijackers that, you know, there's your, um, someone who's just a confused seller, you know, like a new seller who doesn't really know how to properly list. They don't understand that when they list something on your listing, it has to be the exact product. And I think that a lot of times we're, we automatically say it's a hijacker when, you know, it's probably just an innocent seller who's very confused. Um, (laughs) And it could be, um, I've had some situations recently where there's these very bizarre um, entities on the listing and we're starting to think that they could be somehow scraping information off of the listing or maybe trying to look like a bigger brand on or a bigger seller on the Amazon listing. And so when you go do the 999 trick, Manny, are you aware of the 99 trick to see how many? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I thought y'all probably talk. Yeah. So, you know, you'll go into that and you'll see, Oh, okay. There's like 200 and it's almost like always 200. It's like some flat number. So you, you kind of wonder like, what are they doing? So I I typically do consider them an egregious hijacker because um, you know, they're not a legitimate seller of your product. Right. Um, and and for those of you that don't know, we'll just mention that the 999 trick that Susie's uh, referring to just allows you to see how much inventory um, a particular company has in stock or a seller has in stock. So if someone has hijacked your listing, basically you add their product to your cart and then on the checkout page, you'll just change the quantity to 999 <laughs> um, and click update. And then typically they're not going to have 999 units. So Amazon will actually tell you, hey, this seller only has eight units in stock. So you know exactly <laughs> how many they have. So that's a that's a 999 trick. You can use it to find out the inventory on anybody who hasn't blocked it. There's a way of blocking it, but also anybody who um, who has less than a thousand units in stock. And the other thing I wanted to mention for hijackers, guys, is that it's it's kind of scary because you, like Susie mentioned, you go to your listing, your page, right? And then suddenly you realize you're not the seller on there. Everything mm-hmm. looks the same, but it's somebody else selling there, usually for a different price, a lower price than you're selling. And at times, even your listing will change. Some of the things will will change, right, Susie? Right, right. Or they'll grab the buy box, um, which is a horrible wake up call for people when they realize they've lost the buy box on the listing that they, you know, that they created. Yeah. Your sales drop off. You're wondering why, why am I not getting any sales? And you realize that all the, all the review building that you've done for this product, all this time you spent creating it, um, is actually driving sales to, or for another seller. And they're, they're on your listing, everybody. And then the worst part is since these guys probably aren't selling the same product you are, customers are thinking they're getting this product. Mm -hmm. And when they come back to review that product, you know, if it's really terrible, you're going to have to, I mean, it's your listing that's getting slammed. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the word. I mean, that's horrible. I hate when that happens. Yeah. Because, you know, someone is going to end up getting the unbranded products or, you know, just not the one that they thought they were going to get, like you said. And, 
you know, they're going to go give your listing one stars. So I've actually been working um, with Amazon to try to get some one stars removed um, on behalf of my clients who we are certain are attributable to um, counterfeits. So um, it's possible to do that. You know, you just got to really pay close attention to your listing. Um, you know, and that's something I tell people, you know, you have to really stay vigilant. Like you can do your own, um, you know, check your, your own ASINs, um, just constantly to see if there's any, any other sellers on there. Of course, um, a lot of people see a, you know, a noticeable dip in sales, um, you, you know, from what they're typically used to. Um, and then there's also, um, a platform out there called listing Eagle, I think, um, that will monitor for you and alert you. Um, if there's anyone else on your ASINs, which I'm not very familiar with that, but I actually just learned about it recently. So I want to, I definitely want to look into it a little bit more because I think that would help people a lot, especially a lot of clients that have a large number of listings that you just cannot possibly, <laughs> you know, monitor all of them and check them constantly. Yeah. There's, there's times where I've never even known that I was hijacked. They're getting smarter. Um, mm. A lot of these guys that do this professionally, right? They go out. From what I've been told, there's even uh, people or, or businesses, courses out there that teach mm. people how to hijack and make a living actually hijacking products. And so it's, it's getting crazy. But I didn't even know that I was being hijacked because one of the tactics is they jump on for yeah. a few hours at a time and then they're off and then you never see them unless you go to your reports. If you're in Seller mm -hmm. Central, you can look at your reports and you can see the buy box percentage, how often you've had it. And when it's not 100%, you know that somebody's been uh, you know, claiming your buy box there. Somebody, yeah, somebody's been on it. Now, I have heard someone make the suggestion of, um, you know, after sending your initial letter to the um, the alleged counterfeiter um, to, you know, low, temporarily, temporarily lower your price so you hopefully don't lose the buy box. And that way you're basically showing um, that, that counterfeiter that, you know, you, you're going to be aggressive. Um, you know, you're on them instantly and you're not going to let them make any money from your listing. So I don't know. I haven't, I have never, you know, worked with a client who put that method into practice, but that might be something that someone would want to think about doing. Yeah. I've actually done that. So okay. it does work. Okay. So uh, yeah, essentially while you're waiting, um, as, what happens is typically the the buy box is going to go to the lowest priced seller as long as you know their seller feedback is good and everything looks solid. Mm -hmm. um, so you can reduce your price um, below their price and then you should get the buy box back. But uh, in my scenario, it didn't really work because they just kept lowering their price. They would just became yeah. a yeah, and, and it got to a point where I was like, you know what? They're they're not even selling the same product. And they're selling it for less, or they're selling mm -hmm. a cheaper product so they can undercut me anyways. And it's being shipped from China most most of the time. So yeah, yeah. Let's, should we talk about removing the hijackers or the steps to prevent hijackers from even hijacking you in the first place? Where do you well, want to go? Let's talk about a few things that maybe you can do to your listing to prevent them in the first place. Okay. I feel like I've said before, I feel like this is really the meat of, um, you know, of this whole thing, you know, it's just doing what you can to your listing, of course, within Amazon's terms of service, um, to make it clear that this is your branded listing. And one of the other big tips that I give to people, and, and this might seem really straightforward to a lot of people, but a lot of people just don't get this part, but, um, you know, use distinctive and branded packaging and take pictures of the branded packaging with your products and put them on your Amazon listing. I don't think they can be your first picture, but they can be 
um, somewhere, you know, within that listing. Um, I think it's really important to do that. Of course, put your, you know, your trademark on your product if possible. Um, and of course on your, on your packaging. Um, you know, I've even told people if you have a product that's conducive to molding, like if not like the fungus, but like <laughs> to like make, to make mold, you know, like molded products, um, that you might would have your Chinese manufacturer do for you. Um, if you can actually get your trademark as part of the mold, um, that's a really good way to maybe not so much deter that counterfeiter from jumping on there, but it's going to be really easy to show that you've got a counterfeit product, um, or you're dealing with a counterfeit issue because, you know, you're, it's obvious that the, the products are different. And basically the standard with respect to what, you know, what is counterfeit is, is there a material difference in what you're offering versus what the alleged counterfeiter is offering? And courts have been very, um, like generous with what they consider, um, a material difference. And even going so far as, saying, well, if you're offering a warranty with this product and your Chinese hijacker is not, um, that could be considered a material difference and therefore counterfeit. And I've actually used that as an argument with Amazon and I've been able to get, um, you know, counterfeiters off. So really think about whenever you are getting to the point where you have to report to Amazon, um, you know, make it really clear that you're dealing with counterfeit and, you know, A, B, C, D, these are the differences in their product and my product. You know, you just got to lay those out very, very, very straightforward with Amazon. So I probably, I kind of, <laughs> I kind of went over to the enforcement side, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're jumping around. Well, you know what, because they're both very important, right? It's like, once you get hijacked, how do you yeah. get them off? But, and then you're like, well, how do I stop them from doing it in the first place? And there's just so many different things you can do. Yeah. You know, and we talk about brand registry. Um, and I think, and I mentioned this to you earlier, Manny, like, I feel like a lot of people just kind of like, like, what is this brand registry? It's just stupid, you know? Right. <laughs> and yeah. they, they hear people talk about it, but they don't really know why they're doing it. And then they get a rejection back from Amazon and they just throw their hands up in the air and there's like, screw this. I'm not going to do this now. Um, but brand registry is just another step in the whole, uh, deterrent game here and strongly recommend it. It does give you more control over your listings. Um, particularly the content of your listings, which when you, you know, when you have co control over that content, that's huge, especially if you do have a specific warranty or, um, you know, you do want to reference your brand within your um, Amazon listing. And that's something else I suggest people do once they get control of their listing via Amazon brand registry is to, you know, specifically state um, within their, um, within their listing, you know, purchases from unauthorized sellers will not be, uh, will not have the benefit of our warranty or our guarantee. Um, also tell clients, say something within your listing, like be sure to look for this trademark or this particular aspect, this unique aspect um, of our branded packaging. Um, just those little things in the listing are going to, I think help in deterring um, a counterfeiter. It's not, I mean, of course you're going to have really egregious ones and you're going to have them hopping on and off there. Like the ones that you've talked about, Manny, but. Right. Um, so, and that's, yeah. that's important because um, if somebody does hijack your listing mm -hmm. um, or actually if somebody, if, if you have all that information in there and then someone hijacks your listing because you have that brand registry already set up, they can't go mm -hmm. in and edit those things out. So 
they can right. be shipping stuff to people, but they they know that if the person read the content on the page and it's not on there, they uh, they might complain they, to Amazon. They might uh, want a refund, um, and it also helps you, of course, to to uh, get them removed. Exactly. Exactly. Like what you want to do is just, you know, work hard on branding your own product, building up that brand, you know, as number one, a deterrent. Um, and number two, to make a stronger case, if you do end up having to report them as a counterfeit. Okay. So brand registry for sure. And then um, jumping back, you need a trademark in order to the brand registry or what's the process there? Um, no, you don't need to have a trademark um, to, you need to have a brand, <laughs> but you don't have to have like a pending or registered trademark. I wouldn't doubt at some point if Amazon changes this and, and gets even stricter in what it requires for their brand registry, because right now, like, I feel like the requirements for, for brand registry are so just just very lenient. You know, they're, they don't necessarily ask for any proof of ownership of a brand, so I think that that's something that um, maybe they'll be going to at some point. I don't know that for sure. Um, what would a new user need right now to actually uh, get brand registry and lock that in? What do you got to do? Okay, so to get your brand registry, obviously you need to have your brand, um, you know, your trademark. Um, you don't have to have a logo. You can just have your word mark. You'll need to have it on your packaging um, and your product. Um, I've had situations where my client has been rejected for brand registry because it wasn't actually on the product. <laughs> and so this is something we're kind of wrestling with because in some situations, it's impossible to have a brand actually or a logo or a trademark actually on a product. Um, so just try to put it on the product if it's all possible. Um, another thing is you do need to have an e-commerce website set up for this. Um, you can get one for fairly cheap. You can do Shopify. Um, I don't know what your cheapest rate would be with Shopify, maybe 15 a month. I, I don't really remember, but you, I think you can get a Wix website too. Um, you want to clearly show your brand in relation to the product on um, that website. And I also suggest um, people um, show their UPCs on there um, in association with the brand. Um, and then all that should be submitted to, to Amazon. Um, yeah, and okay. basically they review it and they'll prove it. So, does, does, the, it. does the uh, website have to link back to Amazon, the product pages? No, no. As far as I know, they don't have to. Okay, great. So they do that, and then what's how long is the process to have it all go through? Brand registry, as far as I know, can take like 24 to 48 hours. Like it is not, it is not like a complex, you know, filing or anything like that. So, and as far as I know, they're not checking actual USPTO registrations. Um, one thing I do want to mention, I mentioned that UPC code a second ago. Um, I know that there's been a lot of talk about GS1. I'm th I know a lot of people are not going to want to hear me say this, but I think it's going to become more and more imperative to buy those UPCs directly from GS1 and not a reseller um, because there are portions of the UPC that are attributable to to the company. So this is one of those things that I think will help you um, as a brand owner as well is to actually, you know, use a UPC um, that's been generated by GS1 and not from a reseller and definitely not on eBay. Like you're not getting, <laughs> you're not getting good UPCs if you buy like a thousand of them for a dollar on 
eBay. But they're such good value. <laughs> a thousand for a dollar. You're, I know, you're, right? you're, you're absolutely right, though, um, because I, I ended up buying, when I first started, I bought a ton of UPCs. I didn't go to the cheapest place. I went to what I thought was a reputable source. And yeah. I actually saw this on, uh, I think it was probably another Facebook group. And it was funny because not too long ago, I actually ran the some of the UPCs through uh, GS1's uh, database oh. or search. And sure enough, it was registered to to another company. So they just resell <laughs> these things over and over and over. And by the way, guys, I posted that link if you want that, because it's a weird link. Um, <laughs> I couldn't recite it here, but it, uh, it's on our Facebook group. So if you guys want to check your UPCs, you can definitely go there. We might have it in the show notes as well. That's a, yeah, I think it'd be a really good idea for anyone to go at least check a few of their UPCs. Um, but I, you know, I also, when I started private labeling last year, um, I bought from what I thought was a reputable company. It was actually nationwide barcode. It seemed reputable. I mean, I'm like, Hey, it's better than eBay, right? It's not <laughs> like, you know, I thought, you know, you kind of go in the middle of the road and you think you're going to be kind of safe. Um, but you know, if I was starting all over with another product, I would purchase from GS1. And I think what people find that a little bit off-putting is that there is like a like a a fee for that, like a renewal fee for that, or like a subscription fee for that. So like you have to pay like a like a membership um, to to have like your your UPC codes through GS1. And I think people find that really off-putting. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of a pain, right? Cause you're like, man, I, every year now I've got to pay for this, right. this fee for this UPC where the other stuff you buy, you know, like you said, a thousand UPCs for like five bucks and you're done, <laughs> but they don't really technically belong to you. So, you know, exactly. take exactly. it for what it's worth. But yeah, I always look at it this way. If you're buying a GS1 UPC and you do have a yearly fee, you know, it's just the price of doing business, right? Hopefully you're making a lot of money with your product and the yep. fee that you have to pay once a year isn't really that big of a deal, I would say. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. It's the cost of doing business. Like you said, I mean, this is just, you know, if you want to be a legitimate seller and if this is, if you're moving from hobby to business, like this is your company, like, you know, do it right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you know, Susie, I don't actually know. Um, I was told by somebody that with GS1 originally, I guess maybe some years back, you, you would uh, buy something and it would ha you would get like the first X number of digits, and then after that you could just add whatever digits you wanted. It was always registered to your company. Do you, do you know if they still do that? And it was some it was a way to bring down your fees. I have not heard that. Now I have heard that like the first five digits are attributable to your your business entity, um, but I didn't know that about the remaining digits. I'm not sure. Yeah, they. But it it kind of makes sense, though. You know, I don't know. It would definitely be worth looking into. Yeah, for sure. And people have been posting on our Facebook group saying that, you know, Amazon has come after them or they're going mm -hmm. after friends. They're saying, hey, they're looking up our UPC saying it doesn't belong to us and they're blocking their listing. So it might not have hit you yet, but as they, uh, as they move through all the listings and according to what somebody just recently posted, uh, one of the uh, support people there said that they will eventually get through all of them. They're just, mm -hmm. there's, there's millions and millions and millions of them. Yeah. So they're, they're manually checking and you might get affected and it will, it'd be terrible, right? If you're generating thousands of dollars per week on a product yeah. or per day, whatever the case might be. And then suddenly boom, it's gone and you've got to go through and relist the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're just starting down this road, please, please just do it the right way. <laughs> Don't try to save a penny, just, you know, just a little bit of money to, you know, kind of have that headache lingering over you or, you know, losing sleep, that kind of thing. It's just better to do it right if you can. So, yeah, GS1. <laughs>
Perfect. So you've got your, you get your barcode. You're putting everything on the packaging. We're doing everything mm -hmm. that you mentioned. So now, hopefully, you've got your brand registry, your trademark filed. But this doesn't keep somebody from still hijacking your account, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, you're hoping that this will be a good deterrent. Um, but, you know, it, you're, you're still going to have... Unfortunately, I would say 70% of the hijackers that I've dealt with are Chinese based. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the, the problem is that we, Western countries really appreciate and value brands. Um, you know, we love our luxury brands and it's just something, you know, or we, and we love our McDonald's, you know what I mean? Like we, we appreciate that. And you know, I don't feel like they do as much um, in Asia. And that's why there's such a counterfeit issue. And that's why so many of the issues are coming from, from China. I would say if I have to send a notice to um, a Chinese or American based um, hijacker, I would say I'm successful in just getting them off probably 50% of the time. You know, they'll just go away. And I don't know if it's that I actually scared them or... <laughs> I'd like to think that, but you know, <laughs> you know, they'll just go away. And then yeah, I always give them, um, 24 to 48 hours, which is 48 hours is probably too generous. Um, but I do always give them, um, some time to actually open up the email and check it and remove themselves from the listing. And I do tell them, you know, I reiterate, um, what Amazon's terms are or what their policy is with respect to not having, um, or with respect to, listings um being identical you know like if, if you jump on a pro on a listing your product better be identical um and i also mentioned what the repercussions are um if you know for violating that particular um term so usually they do go away but not always um and i do have to report to amazon um and if you you know do have to report to amazon you want to do it on your own like i said it's very important to highlight this is a counterfeit issue <laughs> and you know, don't go into a bunch of stuff about it being unauthorized. Blah, blah, blah. They just, they want to see that it's a counterfeit situation. Um, and like I said, you really want to, you know, show how your product is different than what that counterfeit's going to, what that counterfeit is. Right. Um, yeah, and that so means, and Amazon is going, going to require you at that point to place an order of that product and show them how it's different, right? Or, or is, have you seen uh, different ways of doing this? There are different ways of doing this. Oh, great. I want to hear them then. Because <laughs> a typical process for the longest time has been, you know, send, a, send some kind of a cease and desist letter. Maybe wait uh, a day before you order or a lot of times just place the order right away and, and get the process going. And then you have to prove to Amazon that, hey, this product that they sent is not what um, is actually my product. So what are the other ways of doing it? Well, what I do, I will sometimes get that response back to you that's like, okay, we need your buyer Wait, your order number, sorry. Yeah, your order number and we need, you know, we need to see the test buy information, whatever. Um, so I'll typically respond and say, hey, this is a counterfeit issue. Um, I do not believe that a test buy is necessary and that my client is suffering damages and your customers are going to be um, not happy about this. And my success rate in getting counterfeiters off of, of Amazon thus far has been really good. And I have not sent them a single uh, test buy. Wow. So, do, you, do you think it helps from the fact that when you're contacting them, it's coming from an attorney versus, you know, just regular Joe Lister type 
guy, you know? Joe Lister. Isn't there a company in there, Joe Lister? Yeah, I know, that's, I, I said the wrong thing. It should have been Joe Smith, but yeah, there is a, an eBay company called Joe Lister. <laughs> so, hey, it's like a little advertisement for Joe Lister. I know, yeah. So, hey, if you're selling on, if you want to sell your products on eBay, check out Joe Lister. Joe Lister, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't want to say that. I mean, yeah, they might sit up a little faster um, when a, when a, coming from a lawyer. I don't send things typically. Now, I have sent things in Amazon when I really felt like I need to get someone's attention on um, actual <laughs> actual paper. Can you believe it? I've actually sent things in Amazon on actual paper. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it helps. I do think it helps because they know that someone has paid an attorney to, to prepare that. And so it's, you know, an attorney is not going to, I hope an attorney will not shoot off a letter without like that, without doing some, <laughs> you know, amount of due diligence. You know what I mean? I, I'm yeah. not going to send off a letter unless I know that my client is facing a counterfeit situation. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that it helps in that respect. Um, so it, you know, it might, and, of course, you can try to send it yourself, you know, and I, I have had situations where my clients have tried to send them before and they didn't get any response. And then I did and I signed it, you know, attorney for, you know, so-and-so and I've gotten them removed in about six hours. Again, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it, you know, it, it is attributable to that, but it could be. So. And when you get them removed, do you find that the seller themselves have been completely removed or is it just um, off that listing or is the product completely gone? What, what are your, your takes my, on that? Yeah, so my experience has been they're usually just off the listing. Um, I will take a look around um, about a week later, like after I, you know, just to make sure that they're still off the listing, the client hasn't missed it. And just out of curiosity, I always like to see if that seller is still on there. Uh, or the seller is still selling on Amazon, but you know, of course, a lot of my clients' listing. Um, I do like to to kind of play around and see if they're still out there. And and I've had situations where the they're completely gone. Um, and I've had situations where they're still out there hopping on listings. Unfortunately, not my clients, but you're you can you can still you know find their their seller name on there. So it's crazy to me that you have people that get their accounts you know completely killed by Amazon yeah. because they do, let's say a fake review or something. But then when you find a company that's got straight up counterfeits and yeah. you've gotten them removed because of that reason yeah. and they're still able to sell, it just boggles my mind. It, it blows my mind too. Um, now I have heard, I actually just, I'm in the process of reading um, Cynthia Stein's book, Suspension Prevention, because I just wanted to kind of, I don't know if you've read that book, but she does a lot of reinstatement work. And so I'm reading it and she talked about how sort of the, um, you know, if there's three reports of counterfeit against your listing within a short amount of time, that is going to, you know, be a really bad strike against you versus like two reports over six months. So they look at velocity of reports. Um, so kind of think about that whenever you come across a, um, if you come across a counterfeiter on your listing, you might want to think about how could, um, how can I maybe get some friends to help me out here? With, um, <laughs> the devious one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, just, you know, if you know it's a counterfeit situation. Um, now, like I said, are they going to completely remove the, the list, the, um, the the seller? I don't know. I really have no idea. I don't know what their metrics are internally for that. And I've noticed also that I have certain products for whatever reason, 
they are primed for the, the plucking, I guess you would say, for a hijacker. Um, uh-huh. I have all the protections in place, but I know that they could jump on to this product, but they, mm-hmm. they don't, or maybe they try, but they, and I actually have seen them try, um, but they never get the buy box, even when their mm-hmm. pricing is lower. But what happens, and this has happened to me big time, is I've run out of stock. And of course, as soon as you run out of stock, boom, mm-hmm. you get the buy box, you know? Yeah. And, that, and it kills me, because I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got, I've had them lined up actually. Um, to where you have two or three different guys on there selling this product now, and you know it's a counterfeit, and you know that there's uh, the, the reviews that are going to come in off of those by the time you stop it are going to affect your listing. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So try not to run out of stock because that that also opens you up. And they're scanning for that. There are tools that they can use to actually uh-huh. find products that are out of stock and jump on things. I'm sure. Yeah. These people are um, getting very creative, and they're using some <laughs> some high tech stuff to do it. So and and the thing is too, it's like. It's sort of like playing whack-a-mole with them, you know? You'll get rid of one, another one will pop up, and then you get rid of one. See, I've gotten rid of one before, and my client called me, she was so happy. <laughs> and we were both so happy, it was like a Friday night, and uh, like the next day, they were back on the listing. We were both, I mean, I was just so livid. I was like, it ruined my weekend. Yeah. We were, we've been basking, you know? And so, um, at that point I was like, you know what? I don't have, I, I, I'm reporting them to Amazon. Like this is, this is ridiculous. So I immediately reported it to Amazon and they were gone. So, um, and you know, actually they are, um, a Chinese seller that I have recently looked up on Amazon and couldn't find them anywhere. So I'm hoping, you know, that that account is gone. But with that said, you know, a lot of times when a particular seller goes away, they probably just have ways of opening up a new seller account. So, um, right. Yeah. I imagine they, that's probably all automated at this point. Yeah. So they just have tons yeah. and tons of accounts. Yeah. So one thing I'm, I'm really working with, with my clients, um, at this point is, um, trying to set up kind of restrictions around the entire brand on Amazon so that third parties can't list against them. Kind of similar to what, you know, Nikon or Samsung would do. Um, so that's kind of, I feel like the next step that a lot of brands should be considering. Um, and, you know, I know that a lot of people think, oh, well, this is just for the big brand. You know, this is just for like Disney brands and Samsung's and all that, you know. But I think that um, Amazon will start working with us um, about getting some restrictions set up around brands so that hijackers aren't constantly jumping on them. And I think that they know that they have to do this because otherwise they're just going to be constantly fielding takedown requests. And that's probably, that's probably where the regulation changes are going to come from is as these bigger companies start pulling out of Amazon, I actually read this is happening already um, because they're getting knockoffs. A a lot of the um, vendors for high end, I guess, fashion wear and stuff like that. Yeah. They're, they're pulling their products. And so Amazon is going to have to do something soon or yes. it's going to become yeah. another eBay, right? Yeah. And I hope it doesn't become another eBay. Um, but I, you know, I, you probably are referencing the Birkenstocks that like, I just read that they had pulled off of Amazon, you know, and I'm really surprised that they were dealing with such a counterfeit issue there. Um, kind of seems like that'd be a hard thing to to knock off, but, um, <laughs> I guess it's, I guess it's possible. I mean, they knock off all kinds of luxury purses and, uh, shoes and, you know, all kinds of clothes. So I guess Birkenstocks isn't really any, any different. So, um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think Amazon will start hopefully just cracking down on this because like you said, if they don't, it's just going to, it's just going to become another eBay and they right. don't want that, you know, like <laughs> of course, Amazon is very, customer centric, you know, they're not 
is concerned about the seller. And and that's another thing, you know, I kind of want to mention is that like, if you have, if you're having an issue with another seller, um, Amazon's not going to get in between that. Like that is your problem with the other seller. You know, if you need a lawyer up, you need a lawyer up, but they're not going to, they're not going to adjudicate between two different sellers. They are going to make sure that their customers have the best experience. And I think that's one reason it's really good to, if you are reporting counterfeits, and one of the first things you point out is how your how these customers are going to have a bad experience when they get this junk uh, from from China, you know, <laughs> and, and not your your product that you know is has some kind of value add to it, and you know that you branded. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I think uh, Amazon needs to start working about working on uh, taking care of their sellers a little more. Yeah, it gets crazy. Hopefully I can say this, but I have like a list of um, a lot of the things that we talked about, but just sort of a checklist of, um, of you know, it's a strategy checklist basically to help people build up their brand listings on Amazon. And of course, like, you know, file your trademark, <laughs> submit to brand Amazon's brand registry program. Um, and then I have some tips in there about like what you can do to your listing to sort of distinguish it and, you know, hopefully deter hijackers from hopping on there. So if anyone wants that, that checklist, um, I'd be happy to send it to them. So you just need to email me. How do, where do they, who do they, uh, where do they go to email you? It's just Susie, S-U-Z-I, at theprivatelabellawyer.com. Or you can go to my website, www.theprivatelabellawyer.com. And um, there's a, there's a about me and you can, um, you can click up there and, uh, you know, schedule an appointment with me or just reach out to me via my platform and, or on Facebook. I'm also on Facebook. Cool. I try not to hide too much. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say most people can find me. <laughs> yeah. No, this is awesome stuff. So uh, I want to go back a little bit. I know we've been going for, for a little while here, but when you are actually, when you when you are contacting Amazon to mm-hmm. uh, get them removed, okay, because sure. of counterfeiting, are, are you going through a specific place through Amazon to do this to get to the counterfeit department or what is the process there? Because people I'm sure are wondering, you know, I, I've talked to people over at Seller Support and I get nowhere. They just say, oh, you've got to order, you got to do this. What's the process? Okay. There is a, a, um, a specific site that I go to. Can I find, can, can, you, can I just like try to find it here? How can I share Absolutely. it with people? Yeah. Um, and my contact at Amazon has specifically said, you know, when you do your initial reporting, just go there. She's like, that's where you get your fastest, that's where you'll get your fastest reaction, so, or response. Maybe I can just uh, look it up and I'll shoot it over to, to you and you can share it. Yeah, that, that's you fine. Want to that okay. Yeah, that would be great. Well, we can share it both in okay. the, it's, it'll be either in the show notes or we'll put it over mm-hmm. on our Facebook group, which by the yeah. way, guys, if you are not a member of yet, um, head over to Amazon, I'm sorry, not Amazon, head over to Facebook. <laughs> yeah, go to Facebook and then, um, uh, go to FBA High Rollers. Just type that in and uh, you'll go there. Or you can go to our, our podcast at ampmpodcast.com and we have a link to our Facebook group over on the right side. Awesome. Oh. And I'll shoot that link over to you, Manny, so you can put it up. And and like I said, this is this is what I've been told with my contact at Amazon. This is the best, like, plat- you know, like this is kind of your portal, you know, to report that. And like I said, if you are reporting on your own initially, make sure you... Um, you know, you make it clear that it's a counterfeit issue and you completely lay out what the differences are in your product. Um, and I also want to say, I do think it is really important to try to reach out to the other seller before you do report to Amazon. 
because you do have situations where um, it is an innocent, you know, and someone just has really no clue what they're doing. And this is, you know, this is people's livelihoods at this point for, you know what I mean? So, or it's becoming that way for a lot of people or they want it to be. And so I think it's good to give them an opportunity to, to get off your listing before you report them. Right. Okay, cool. And then if somebody doesn't want to do this, they don't know what, you know, the whole process or they're just intimidated. Um, this is a service that you also provide. You, they can hire you to go out and do this for them. Yep. I sure can. Perfect. Yeah, because it's one of those things that, you know, some people just don't want to deal with. <laughs> I always say people like hire attorneys to like take on their problems. You know what I mean? It's like outsourcing problems. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So if, if they, if they want a fee schedule for that, is it different depending on what's going on? You know, I do have a flat fee schedule for that. And it is on my website, um, the private label lawyer.com. Um, and if you go to the top, it says store and you can see my flat rates. Um, for Amazon hijacker removal. And then I also have my flat rate for um, trademark filing. So it's all right there. Okay, cool. So yeah, if anybody's yeah. interested, head over there. And, and uh, it's a, is there a long wait period? Are you super busy or, or do you get on this pretty fast? <laughs> I can get on it pretty fast. I'm, I am a little slow on weekends. Because, like I said, I've tried really hard. I've two nephews and a niece and like I really try hard to spend time with them on the weekends um but you know I'll work late for people (laughs) (laughs) I've worked late during the week plenty of times to get these because I understand that um you know in this situation time is money and I know that I've had clients that are like I'm losing thousands of dollars to sell you know what I mean (laughs) of sales and um so obviously the quicker that I can respond um hopefully that'll help save them money. So I do try to be extremely responsive to get them off. So, and like I said, on my list, I say right here, I'm sort of my store. Um, you know, I've gotten hijackers off in about six hours and typically 24 to 48 hours. If I have to reach out to Amazon, um, if, if I can just get the hijacker, you know, off the listing, it can be done pretty quickly. And, and also that is one benefit of using an attorney because, you know, they do see that you lawyered up and that does scare people a lot more. Like, holy crap, you know, they have a lawyer and so <laughs> this isn't worth it. So they will bail, uh, you know, quicker. But in the situation, you know, the, the situations where I actually have to reach out to Amazon, um, you know, and you have a hijacker that's just being, you know, a jerk, they're just not leaving. It does take, it, it can take longer, you know, just, you know how Amazon is. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Um, I think the value here is, and the fact that you do not have to wait for that product to come in because you've been able to do it without that. And mm-hmm. I know that when I've done it and pretty much everybody else I know that's that's gotten into this kind of an issue with a hijacker, they have to order that product and then you've got to wait. And especially if it's coming from China, then you've got a longer yeah. wait, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's money being lost because people might say, well, I don't want to pay that fee to you know, to some uh, attorney to have it removed. But if you're losing sales for three, four days, which is what it's gonna take minimum, even if it's here in the US, um, and then way longer if it's overseas, it might be worth it. Yeah, and I think, um, I, I think it could be that, and I haven't really asked my contact at Amazon about this yet for, for clarification, but I do wonder if it, if it is because it's a counterfeit notification coming from a law firm, you know, and Amazon knows internally that they can face consequences for having counterfeit items on their um, platform. Um, There was a case several years ago where Tiffany sued um, eBay. 
So for, for having counterfeit goods. And so, you know, they know that there is an element of liability there if they're permitting that. So that could be part of the reason that they jump so fast in taking down uh, the, you know, the hijacker when it comes from an attorney. Um, and like I said, though, I've had situations where I know the seller has just been forced off of our listing and that they're still, <laughs> they're still roaming around out there, just probably waiting for the next cease and desist letter. So. Yeah. All right. Great. So we've jumped back and forth on prevention versus actually <laughs> handling the situation once you do get hijacked. Uh, was there anything we skipped over, anything you want to uh, talk about? When you're setting up your e-commerce site, I think it's really good to, um, you know, of course, show your brand that you're going to have to do that for your brand, um, for Amazon's brand registry program. Um, but another thing you might want to do on there is um, clearly state your warranty. I think that's a really good thing to just say, like, you know, this warranty only applies to purchases from authorized sellers. Um, and of course, you you do want to say that on your Amazon listing. Um, and in that strategy list that I mentioned a minute ago that people can email me for, um, or actually you can get on my website for free. It's actually on my website free if you just click on there. There's a link to Clips, you know, the audio company. They have a really awesome page on their website all about their warranty and unauthorized sellers. And I think it's just a really good example um, for people to look at when they're setting up their own e-commerce site. Cool. Yeah, I, that's, I think that's a smart idea to put that on there. So even if the manufacturer and the seller are the same names, let's say, right? A lot mm -hmm. of people use the same thing. Yeah. It's okay to say the warranty is only through, well, how did you word it? Specific sellers or specific dealers? Um, let's see how I worded this in my example. Only purchases from authorized sellers will be eligible for our warranty. Okay, and uh, you don't need to list the, who the authorized sellers are anywhere? Well, <laughs> I do suggest to list the authorized sellers, which would be you, <laughs> nobody else. And if you want to, you could maybe consider listing unauthorized sellers, people who you've seen or companies that you've seen hop on your listing. Um, now, I would urge people to take a look at Amazon's terms of service before they do that, just to make sure. <laughs> I, I have recommended this in the past, but I am not 100% sure that that does not conflict with um, Amazon's terms of service. Um, of course, you're going to have to have, um, you're going to have to have brand registry at that point to be able to change your listing in that way. Um, I think the worst that would happen would be you would get a slap in the hand or your listing would be temporarily deactivated to get that changed, but I haven't had anyone have a problem with it. All right, then. So, I and, you know, your online store, you know, your e-commerce site should definitely list authorized sellers and unauthorized sellers. Um, and I'm pretty sure the Klipsch website does that. So, yeah, make sure you take a look at that. Like I said, it's, it's in the it's a link in my um, actually I could send it to you. Want me to also? Um, yeah, that'd be I, great. And would you mention the authorized sellers on the Amazon page as well or only on the product page, the, your website? I would do it on the Amazon page. Okay, so on both, put it on yep. both places. All right, mm -hmm. cool, yep. all right. In that strategy list, I have a list of different companies. I'm not affiliated with any of them, but you know, are different, um, different kind of value add when it comes to your branded packaging. Um, and just an example of, I think, how important packaging is, people underestimate it. And it, you know, it doesn't have to be complex, but if you think about Tiffany and company, um, you know, that, blue box <laughs> is like such an iconic package, you know, and of course, Tiffany's been around for a long time and they have, you know, worked hard on their branding, but 
you know, that color blue is actually a trademark. So, you know, when you start branding and you start going along this path of building out your private label business, you know, you might want to really think about, you know, what other elements of my branding could potentially be subject to trademark protection. It could go beyond just a word or a logo. I think a lot of people overlook that. And, you know, if you have distinctive colors, um, like I said, the Tiffany blue, it's called like Robin Dead blue or Tiffany blue. That's a, that's a registered trademark. The red wax on a Maker's Mark bottle, that's a registered trademark. So just really think outside the the box when it comes to your branding and what you can use for your company that's really distinctive to you. Okay, and I have I do have one other thing I want to ask. Sure. If somebody is sourcing a product and you're not sure whether that product is even allowed here, let's say it's somebody else yeah. has that trademark, is there any protection or anything that you recommend to people? Have you run into this where you know you have steps to prevent yourself from buying two thousand units of something that you can't even sell once it gets here because you didn't do any? Any research? Oh gosh. Okay. So I have had this situation. <laughs> I had a client import a product that had an element on it that was subject to a color trademark. And I can't really say what it is because I just don't want to give too much information on it. But it was it's such an unusual, bizarre situation. I told her I would have never thought to have searched for this as a trademark, this color for the small element. And that other company, it's a fairly famous, I don't want to say it's famous, it's mildly famous, um, deactivated her listing. And now she has like 2,000 of these products just sitting in a warehouse and she's based internationally. So, um, you know, in those situations, you can't check, you know. Of course, you know, most situations, someone's not going to be importing something that's already trademarked. You're going to be doing it stateside, you know. Now, you could be alluding a little bit to patent issues. And that in itself is sort of another beast. And I think that we're going to see more problems with this, uh, with people importing things that have patents on them. And yeah, that, that can be a really scary thing. I mean, if you, if you want to be com- not completely safe, but if you really want to cross your T's and dot your I's, I had to think about that for a second. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's like, it's getting late on the East Coast. <laughs> Yeah. Once you, um, you know, you can do, you could hire a law firm to do like a patent clearance search for you. And those do not, those are not cheap. I mean, I don't even, I'd say they probably start at $2,000. Um, and so basically what they would do is they'd look at this product that you're interested in importing, you know, importing, and then they would, um, do patent search to see if it's, you know, something else is already out there like that. So, um, the reason it costs so much is, when a law firm, you know, does that, that clearance search and reports on that um, and advises on it and then says, yeah, we're pretty sure that you can probably import this and use it, you know, they're assuming a lot of liability um, because typically if a patent lawsuit does result from um, an infringement there, it's going to be a high dollar situation. So, um, and then the law firm is going to be brought into it probably at some point. Yeah, um, that makes so, sense. Yeah, so the malpractice insurance for patent firms um, is pretty significant. So that's why they cost so much to do these searches. But yeah, just to you know, let listeners know that if you, you know if you are really concerned about that, you know, when you're importing, you know, something that seems super unique um, or whatever, you you can you can hire a patent firm to do the like a clearance search for you. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, just a word of advice to the listeners: if you find that golden goose product, right? You're online, uh, you're on Amazon, and you're like, man. 
I don't understand why a ton of people haven't jumped on this product because yeah. all the numbers look crazy and there's hardly any competition. <laughs> there's probably a reason and that actually happened to me, crazy. yeah. I'm like, this is why is nobody jumping on this product? It's so good. And then uh, sure enough, I had found one company that was making it and I'm like, I'm gonna crush it on this one. And then sure <laughs> enough, there was patents on it after I did a little yeah. bit more digging. Aren't you glad you, you looked around? Yeah, you can, um, if you want to do some of your own kind of digging around, Google Patents is, is pretty decent. It's a pretty decent platform. I mean, you basically get on there and you put in keywords. And it, it is actually impressive how Google has kind of, I don't know, like they've just kind of aggregated all the, the patents, I guess, in the U.S., um, pending, oh no, they're not pending, but I guess all registered. So um, it may be pending. I don't know. I haven't looked at it in, in several years, but um, you can use Google Patents to do some of your own searching. And, you know, it's kind of analogous to doing like what I call the trademark knockout search or that cursory search on your own. You could maybe do that with a product that you're interested in importing. And then you would, um, you know, insert the keywords and you know, but it can be really complex and um, just looking at the different claims on these patents and, and that kind of thing can just get so overwhelming. So, and you yeah. can just go down a rabbit hole, you know what I mean? It's been I do. doing it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I got lucky. I, I found it only because I did a search on the brand name. I'm like, well, let me just do a oh. patent search on this. And it happened to pop up. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that, that you found that. <laughs> I, I'm going to ask again, any, any final things? Cause I think it's, I think it's been fantastic. Well, good. Um, well, I don't know if I talked about proactively monitoring trademarks and, and this kind of goes hand in hand. I feel like with the searching, um, you know, once a company chooses a brand that they you know want to use for private label, um, it's also important to monitor that brand and police it. Um, because, you know, let's say that you eventually do get your mark registered. Um, you're going to want to enforce it if you do come across someone who's infringing it. And I always tell people, you know, just getting the registration for a trademark is kind of just half the battle. Um, you need to proactively monitor your mark, whether you do that yourself or you, you know, hire a third party service to do that for you. But um, just keep in mind that just getting the registration is it's great, but you're still, you still need to monitor your mark and enforce it when necessary. Okay, and how do you monitor your trademark? Um, well, people can do it manually for free other than their time <laughs> and they can use the, the resources that I gave earlier that know them and name check and just calendar to check those like every month. Um, they can check the USPTO website monthly. They can check um, Google. They can set up a Google alert um, with their, you know, their word mark. Um, that kind of stuff kind of does get a little bit overwhelming after Tom. Um, but I use a company called CompuMark and, or for my clients. And basically it's, it's the same company that I do the searching with. You put your mark, you, you, know, like you, make, you make your order and then you, um, you know, tell them what your mark is and they will monitor your trademark for you. And you can sort of, there are services for every budget and it starts at about $300 annually. And that would be um, monitoring USPTO filings and publications. Um, now, if you want to spend more, you could also monitor uh, common law uses that are out there. If you wanted to spend even more, you could monitor international <laughs> um, uses that could pop up. So, um so yeah, so you can outsource that, you know, just like there's a software for everything, you know, like there's an app for that. For, <laughs> right. There's like, yeah, there's like a software for that, you know, that will do it for you. So, um, and really you gotta think about, okay, well, I know that I could spend two or three hours a month doing this. Um, but the cool thing about CompuMark is they'll just report 
to you whenever something pops up. And it's usually, you know, I usually get reports about once a week for my clients. Um, now I have some clients that they just want the report sent directly to them and I never look at it. Um, I have some clients that want me to look at it um, and just kind of make sure everything looks okay because usually it's not a conflict. Like usually something will pop up and I'm like, eh, that's not really an issue because the goods are so different, you know? Um, or if it does look like it could be an issue, I always like report it to the client and then we discuss about whether or not a cease and desist letter um, is in order. And um, kind of backing up on that a little bit with a cease and desist letter, you know, if you're going to send a cease and desist letter to someone, you better make sure that you're the first user of that trademark. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't want to send a cease and desist letter and then you find out that the other company was actually the first user because you're basically saying in that cease and desist letter that your marks, you know, are confusingly similar. So, <laughs> yeah, you know. you're digging your own grave at that point. You are digging your own grave, yeah. So definitely uh, do do some do some due diligence on that before you send off a cease and desist letter, and and that's why I think it really is good, um, you know, to have an attorney look at it because even if you do come across the, I mean, I never come across infringement issues. It's always my clients bringing them to me, or you know, CompuMark. You know, I don't I don't look myself. Um, but you know, we always do our due diligence. There's, there's different levels of doing that, different ways to do that. Um, but it's super important to make sure that you're the first user of a trademark before you do that or before you send a cease and desist letter. Okay. Good stuff. I guess we went on a little bit of a tangent there outside of, off of Amazon a little bit, but. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all good. You know what? There's always something, um, a lot of people don't think they need specific information, you know, like, oh, I don't need to deal with hijackers. I don't need to worry about trademarks. And then something happens and they're like, oh, man, I wish I would have done this. Yeah. Or I wish I would have known that. They'll come back to it. So all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they'll come back to it when they have to. <laughs> right, right. So you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about legalese and all that kind of stuff, right? It's not the, the pretty side of it. They want to hear about sales and, you know, sourcing and making money. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. you know, it's unfortunately, it's something that uh, it can save you a lot of money. So in, in that respect, it does make you money. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, and I feel like if you, you know, set up your listings just right on Amazon, um, you know, doing it, you know, right from the outset, brand registry, trademark registration, those are your your first two big steps. You know, you're already, you're probably already ahead of like 75% of the sellers out there. Yeah, yeah, I So. <laughs> I think we've covered a ton. If we've missed anything, we'll be able to uh, have you come back on the show. And I'm sure there's going to be questions. Uh, you're part of our, our Facebook group, so um, people can ask you questions there. But um, I'd definitely like to have you on um, when things have changed enough to where people are like, wait, we need we need to know about this, this, and this. Sure. I think you've covered just about everything here. This was awesome. Well, I think it's a constantly evolving thing, you know, and I learned something new all the time, you know, and the, the space like it is right now is not going to be the same in two months this fall it's something is going to be different you know and i just think it's really important to to just really try to stay on top of it you know you just have to yeah absolutely so once more for those that uh might have just kind of jumped around on this podcast if they want to contact you or get some more information uh what's the website it's www.theprivatelabellawyer.com Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Susie. Susie Hickson, um, she can save you a lot of headaches if you don't want to deal with all the nasty stuff out there related to uh, intellectual law, uh, private label madness with hijackers. Um, Definitely reach out to her. 
she's just a wealth of knowledge and you know a lot of people need this kind of service so i'll definitely be reaching out to you i'm sure well i hope you don't have any counterfeit problems manny but i'll try to help you if you do <laughs> yeah you know what i've i've had tons of hijacker issues and i've been i've been lucky to some extent some of them yeah. some of them have been brutal and just kind of fought me and like do what you got to do you'll never get me off your listing kind oh. of a thing i'm like oh my gosh so um but yeah, yeah. if there's anything really bad i'll uh, be in touch i will drop the hammer on them drop the hammer crush them <laughs> So, all right, uh, Susie, appreciate you coming uh, on our podcast. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. You too, Manny. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. You've been listening to the AMPM podcast hosted by Manny Coates. For more information, insider tools, and to get the resources mentioned in this episode, visit ampmpodcast.com.